0: you're listening to TIP.
1: I think there's a misperception out there that cheap means it's not growing rapidly. And while that's often true, it's certainly not always the case. And I would cite an example that's in our portfolio today, First Citizens Financial, the bank that bought SVB from the FDIC. It has grown its book value and earnings and sales so rapidly. That in Morningstar's ranking system, it fits squarely in with growth companies. Yet it sells at eight times earnings and at tangible book value.
2: In this episode, I chat with legendary value investor Bill Nigren and Robert Bierig about the formation of Harris Associates, their value based investing strategy, their unique way they have their analysts and portfolio managers come to a consensus on a stock a deep dive on an exciting underpriced business they've recently added in IQVIA, a look at some undervalued industries they're researching, the importance of reevaluating your stocks regularly when information changes, and a whole lot more. I first learned about Bill Nigren during his excellent interview with Michael J. Mobison. I was very impressed with his value-based approach and some of the unique ways his fund was run. It was a truly eye-opening listen that provided me with a lot of interesting investing topics to think about. His wealth of knowledge and experience from 42 years in the field is very apparent when you hear him discuss investing. Robert Bierig is 24 years of experience in the investment world. He's a portfolio manager for two of Oakmark's funds and did a wonderful job of breaking down IQVIA to any investors looking for exposure to the data side of healthcare. Any value investor who is in search of new ideas should give this episode a listen, as they give their valuable opinions on where they are seeing the most value in today's markets. Now, Without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Bill Nigren and Robert Bierig.
0: You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Greve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
2: Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Grieve, and today we bring Bill Nigren and Robert Bierig onto the show. Bill, Bobby, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Kyle. It's a treat for us to be here today.
2: So I've been a big fan of you guys for the last few years, and I know listeners are gonna learn a ton from you today about the two of you from how you invest at Oakmark, as well as going over an exciting new addition into your portfolio in the, uh, the business IQVIA. Bill, I wanted to kick things off with a question for you. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history of the fund, what differentiates it from competitors, and how you've utilized a value-based approach so successfully?
1: Sure. When I joined Harris Associates 40 years ago, it was primarily a private wealth management business, and it had a very deeply held belief in long-term value investing. And as my generation started to grow up in the firm, we wanted to have a way not only that we could invest our own money, but that we could bring friends and acquaintances into Harris Associates before they had a $5 million minimum that you needed to be in a high net worth account. And we looked at the mutual fund industry and thought there were five important ways that we could differentiate relative to the competitive set. First, we thought we could build a strong brand where the name Oakmark would mean something. Most of the firms try and do so many things under one brand that we felt it diluted the value of the brand. But we wanted the Oakmark brand to be synonymous with value investing. And not only in the Oakmark fund, but any additional fund that we would offer, it would be a value investing framework that determined what stocks went into it. Secondly, we wanted our communications with shareholders to be educational. I think a lot of our industry communicates directly with their shareholders only the twice a year that's required by law, and that tends to be limited to which are the stocks that help performance and which hurt. We wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to connect with our shareholders quarterly and to try to educate because we believe To be a successful investor in equities, you need to be a long-term investor, and that requires understanding how your fund managers think, not just looking at the results. So we write quarterly. Our material's available on oakmark.com, and it tends to be some of the more insightful commentary that you see in the fund industry today. The third thing is we felt the advantage we could bring to the table was our stock selection skill. And we noticed that across the fund industry, managers really diluted their stock selection ability by having a 100 or more names in their portfolios. I think that approach only makes sense if you're trying to really hug an index and make sure you don't underperform by much. But when you think stock selection is your skill, the fewer names you have in the portfolio, the more that skill influences the results. So our most diversified product, the Oakmark Fund, has roughly half the names in it of an average mutual fund today. Fourth, we wanted to maximize total returns on an after-tax basis over a long-time horizon. Most of the fund industry at that point in time would look at either return through capital appreciation or return through income and prioritize one over the other. And very few funds paid attention to after-tax returns. We thought we could have an edge by being indifferent between growth that came from capital appreciation or dividend income, and to minimize the take of taxes to maximize after-tax returns. And then last, we wanted to align the incentives of our managers with our shareholders. Uh, We thought it was interesting that across most of the fund industry, the investment by the management teams was very small. We started Oakmark because that's how we wanted to invest our own money. And we're proud of the fact today that for our portfolio managers on these funds, their personal investments in the funds that they manage are the largest investments that they have. So we thought if you combine those five differences, it would give us enough of a point of differentiation that a small one office firm in Chicago could compete effectively with the giants in the industry.
2: Just browsing at your portfolio, I see you guys own a really good mix of both traditional value stocks and growth businesses. Do you use specific growth hurdles such as you know, per share revenues, profits, free cash flows, et cetera, when determining whether a business fits into your criteria?
1: We would say that everything we own is a value stock and some of them happen to grow more than average. And all of those metrics you mentioned are metrics that we will use occasionally, but we're using those to try to get to an estimate of the rate of per share value growth. And what we are looking for, in addition to buying companies at a big discount, what we think their intrinsic value is, we want the combination of per share value growth and dividend yield to at least match what we expect from the market. And in that way, we can then have the patience that you need to be a successful value investor because the more time that goes by, the larger the valuation gap is.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So you mentioned that you consider yourselves pure value uh, investors, which I can't disagree with. But what would you say is the difference between a growth stock and a value stock? Do you think there is a difference at all?
1: We could spend the whole hour on this question, and I'll try not to make it take that long. I think there's a misperception out there that cheap means it's not growing rapidly. And while that's often true, it's certainly not always the case. And I would cite an example that's in our portfolio today, First Citizens Financial, the bank that bought SVB from the FDIC. It has grown its book value and earnings and sales so rapidly that in Morningstar's ranking system, it fits squarely in with growth companies. Yet it sells at eight times earnings and at tangible book value. Yes, it's a growing business, but we definitely consider that to be a value stock. I think the biggest difference between growth and value investors is how far into the future they're willing to look. A growth investor is often trying to make an estimate of how the next decade or two will be different than the present is. And we, like most value investors, think our crystal ball gets cloudy much faster than that. So we don't ever want to invest in a company where you need to have it sell at more than a market multiple seven years from now to justify the price that you're paying today. That does rule out a lot of the really high PE multiple stocks. But as you said, our portfolio, despite that constraint, uh, does have a lot of good growth companies in it.
2: On your site, you say that you want businesses with executives who think and act like owners. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that?
1: Sure. I think one of the problems or potential problems you have as a public equity investor is the agency issue that the executives managing the companies aren't the owners of it. We, the shareholders, hire those executives to run the business in our best interests. And there can be differences between how a professional manager maximizes their personal economics and what's best for the outside shareholders. And you, know, you can cite examples of companies that have gotten bigger by making overpriced acquisitions, for example. makes the manager's job bigger and probably pays better because of that, but it destroys per share value for the shareholders. So we want to make sure that the managements we're investing in maximize their personal economics by doing the right thing for the outside shareholders. So when we look at the metrics that determine their performance compensation, generally, we want to make sure there's a denominator. So it's not just growth, it's growth per share. It's not just earnings getting bigger, it's earnings per share. Because we think human nature is people do a pretty good job of maximizing their personal economics. And we want to make sure we're along for that ride as outside shareholders.
2: So you said you've, you like to buy businesses that are trading about 50 to 60% of their intrinsic value and then sell once it gets to say 90 to 100% of intrinsic value. As you mentioned previously, the speed that that happens determines your rate of return. What's your desired speed on that? Or, or like you said, is it just purely to kind of outpace the S&P 500?
1: The desired speed would be one day. It very rarely happens. We don't have a target turnover ratio. We buy stocks you know, when they're less than $0.60 cents on the dollar or so, then we sell them above $0.90 cents on the dollar. Obviously, the faster that happens, the better it is for our shareholders. We found that typically it takes about five years for the market's view of value and our view to converge. And that's why it's so important that we aren't invested in value traps where the best days are behind them. They're competitively disadvantaged and they might actually be worth less five years from now than it appears they're worth today. That The criteria that we have that we want growth in per share value plus dividends to at least match the S&P is what allows us the luxury of taking a five- to seven-year view on, on companies when we invest in And yes, of course we want to do better than the S&P or any other equity index that you can think of, but we also don't want to lose sight of we're investing real money for real people to help them meet real world financial goals so it's not a game to us of you know trying to do a few basis points better than the S&P we're trying to grow people's capital so that they can meet their financial needs for education retirement etc and growth of capital in real terms is just as important as beating our competitors beating the S&P or any other index
2: Let's imagine that you do the modeling on uh, one of these businesses and the price reaches your intrinsic value. How do you make adjustments to your intrinsic value as time goes along? Because uh, you know, if you're looking at really good businesses, obviously sometimes they get even better than you, than you first imagined.
1: Yeah, really important question because many of our long-term holdings have risen way above what our initial estimate of intrinsic value was. So our analysts... Uh, do maintenance work on every stock that's in our portfolio, and update their best guess of business value based on any new information that comes out. And we want this process done formally, at least quarterly. But really, it's it's constant. That if a company, a similar company is acquired, that might help us refine our estimate of what multiple is appropriate for the earnings. If earnings come in a little better or worse than expected. We want to make sure we're adjusting our long-term estimates for any of those shortfalls or excesses that we believe are likely to be sustainable. So if an analyst, let's, I'll just make up numbers, the stocks at 60, the analyst thinks it's worth 100, and uh, if it got over 90, we'd sell it tomorrow. But a year from now, that 100 is probably 107, two years from now, 115. And by the time we're out five or six years, it could be 50% higher than what our initial estimate of value was. But once the stock reaches our estimate of fundamental value, it's sold. The only reason we might drag our feet would be to let a holding go long term to lower the tax bite. But we don't become momentum investors just because something has worked out.
2: So Bill, on your conversation on value investing with Legends, you mentioned a very interesting framework that exists between your analysts and fund managers. In order for a stock to qualify for entry into the portfolio, it must be greenlit by senior management team before it can make it into the portfolio. Can you discuss a little bit more about how you came about this approach and why it works so well for you guys?
1: Sure. And I think most people are really surprised to find out, I've been doing this for 40 years, I have never been able to put a stock into the portfolio just because I think it's attractive. This is a policy that was in place 40 years ago when I joined Harris Associates even before we had the Oakmark Fund. As I mentioned, we were primarily a private wealth management business and that meant most of the professionals here who were responsible for those portfolios were more client contact, client relation managers, as opposed to spending all their time thinking about investments. So to kind of put guardrails on those those managers, any stock idea that they wanted to put in the portfolio had to be presented in front of all our investment professionals, heavily debated, basically trying to shoot holes in the idea, trying to identify as many of our mistakes as we could before we lost real money on them. And as our business shifted from private wealth management to more the mutual fund business, even though we had investors now in charge of of the portfolios, this process had been so successful for us. You know, we found the analyst suggestions tended to be better than the S and P five hundred, and then those that we voted acceptable for portfolios were better than the analyst suggestions. So each step of the process was adding value, and We knew that by having to debate in front of all the investment professionals you work with, it imposed a certain rigor on the analysts. You don't just walk into the room and say, hey, I heard a neat idea on CNBC this morning. You understand the business well, the competitive dynamics, why it's more attractive than alternative investments. And we think that rigor is something that's important. And even though everyone involved on the funds today is investment professional by trade as opposed to a client portfolio manager we still think this process adds value it allows our analysts to think more like portfolio managers and we think that's also important as we think about building the next generation i've often said that the secret sauce for us at oakmark is our depth of talent and one of the reasons our depth is strong as it is is because of this process that every analyst goes through on not only their own ideas, but then it's their job to try and poke holes in their peers' ideas. And it has worked very well for us uh, for multiple generations.
2: Let's take a quick break
0: and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. And most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com. mi That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com. Slash MI for your extended 30 day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30 day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day to day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, And it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by
2: public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. This is a paid endorsement for Public Investing. 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with Public Investing, member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com/disclosures/high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. So let's jump into our company, deep dive into IQVIA. Bobby, to start us off, can you give the audience a brief overview of the business and its industry as well?
3: Sure. It's a pleasure to be with you, Kyle, and happy to do that. IQVIA is the largest contract research organization, and it's a leader in related healthcare technology. Contract research organizations are known as CROs, So what they do is manage the key elements of clinical trials for pharma and biotech companies. You can think of it as an outsourcing model for services like study design, patient recruitment, data collection, and regulatory compliance. All of these things are related to clinical trials. And then on the healthcare technology side, IQVIA provides real-world evidence and software, analytics and consulting, and prescription data to biopharma companies. We can go into more detail on these businesses later in our conversation, but at the big picture level, what's important is that we think IQVIA is positioned on the right side of trends in healthcare. It's a good example of a company that meets our investment criteria today because it sells at a significant discount to what we think it's worth. It's growing per share value. In fact, it's doing so at an above average rate. And it's run by a good management team with a track record of both strong operational performance and capital allocation.
2: So IQVIA was formed from a merger between Quintiles and IMS Health back in 2016 in an all-stock transaction. Can you discuss this merger in a little more detail for the audience?
3: Yes. As you mentioned, IQVIA was, was formed through this combination that happened around seven years ago. The deal closed in October of 2016. It was structured as an all-stock merger. IMS shareholders uh, owned 51% of the company. Quintile shareholders owned 49% of the company. And Ari Boosbib, who's the CEO of IQVIA today, had joined IMS Health as CEO back in 2010. When Ari came to IMS, uh, he saw that it was really a data business. The company has prescription and pharmacy records on over a billion patients all over the world, going back more than 50 years. So this data is considered like the gold standard in the healthcare industry. And what Ari saw back then is that IMS had good market share, but they weren't growing much beyond just taking price. He looked around at companies like McKinsey, Accenture and Viva. And he realized that these companies were building their own businesses using IMS data. So Ari saw an opportunity to broaden what IMS was doing by investing in technology and saw that they could create a much larger addressable market opportunity. He could leverage this core data to grow in analytics and consulting, and he could do higher value work for pharma clients. Ultimately, the combination with Quintile's was really a natural extension of Ari's strategy. The logic of the merger was that you could run IMS data through Quintile's CRO pipes to accelerate growth and gain share.
2: So can you tell me a little bit more about the CEO, Ari Bausbib? What was his previous work history? You mentioned that he was with one side of the merged companies. And how do you think he's done so far with IQVIA?
3: Previously, Ari, uh, had spent 14 years at United Technologies. He ran their commercial companies, which included Otis Elevator, Carrier, and their fire and security business. These are, he, he's a former partner at Booz Allen. So he's done a good job throughout his career. I think he's done an excellent job with IQVIA. Before he came in, Quintiles was the largest CRO, but it, it really wasn't reaching its full potential. I think Ari said back then that Quintiles was the Rolls Royce of CROs. It had a large existing book of business, but it didn't do enough selling. And Ari saw this opportunity to add salespeople, focus more on the emerging biopharma companies that drive a lot of the growth in the industry, and eliminate this kind of middle management overhead. Bringing Quintiles and IMS together, you know what they did was they improved trial design they provided more efficient site identification, and they accelerated patient enrollment. And that's translated to the fastest bookings growth and the highest book-to-bill ratios in the industry. So if you step back, IQB has gone from around $9 billion in pro-forma revenue at the time of the merger to a little over $15 billion today. And the adjusted earnings per share has gone from less than $4 to more than $10. Management has also bought back around 25% of the, of the share base since that merger. And the last thing I'll say on Ari is that he thinks and acts like an owner because he is an owner. You know, Bill had mentioned earlier in the conversation that we like to see people that have significant skin in the game. You know, Ari owns $250 million plus of, of the stock outright, and he has another 1 million options.
2: Are there any other notable executives that investors should familiarize themselves with if they were interested in learning more about IQVIA?
3: Well, I think the CFO, Ron Bruleman, is, is someone else to uh, become familiar with. He, Ron has been with RE for many years. He became the CFO of IQVIA in 2020, but before that had been CFO at IMS prior to the deal and, and then was a, an advisor to RE. He actually started out working with RE at United Technologies, so they've known each other for a long time.
2: So let's jump into some of the details of IQVIA's two major segments. Which of these two segments excites you the most, and why?
3: I think both of the major segments are exciting. The R and D solution segment accounts for a little more than half of total profits. That's the CRO business, which management sees growing at around nine to twelve percent organically. The market there is only around 50% outsourced today, and it should get to 70 to 80% eventually, which creates a multi-decade tailwind for above-average growth. That segment gets most of the attention from the sell side because the analysts who cover IQVIA tend to be CRO specialists. But for that reason, it's the other segment, which is the technology and analytics solutions business that's called TASK that probably isn't as well understood as it should be. And it accounts for a little less than half the total profits. Management thinks that it can grow 7 to 9% organically. Now, the tasks segment consists of several different pieces, but the part that's most worth highlighting is the real-world evidence portion, which is around 25% of the segment. This business is growing at a mid-teens rate or higher, so it's an important driver of overall growth. You can think of real-world evidence as a phase four clinical trial. So when you do a a typical clinical trial in phases one to three, it's mostly about determining the safety of a drug. When you get into phase four, it's about finding out the effectiveness and other use cases of the drug in different indications. As an example, maybe the drug was originally tested for cardiology, but what if it might also help with weight loss? You could use real-world evidence to evaluate that question. And what's unique about IQVIA is that it can use its data to find patients that fit all the parameters retrospectively and figure out whether the drug works as expected without having to go ahead and do another trial.
2: So you mentioned earlier that IQVIA has access to data that goes back like 50-plus years with this data, do they own all of it? Is it easily accessible by competitors? I'd love to know more about that.
3: Yeah, this is a really important question. What's unique about the IMS data is really two things. One, it's global. And two, it has full depth and breadth. It's, it's more detailed than anything else that's out there. ICON, which is the second largest CRO, also has data through Symfony. But that's mainly limited to U.S. pharma data. It it doesn't help you recruit in Europe, China, Africa. And IQVIA's data, it consists of prescription records, pharmacy records. It's linked to historical data sets. It comes from many disparate sources. Like the, the secret sauce here isn't really the raw data per se. It's about the cleaning, the curating, and the linking that's done to pull together a picture on more than a billion non-identified patient lives. And like I said earlier, IQVIA has this data going back more than 50 years.
2: Just talking about that data, obviously that's one of their competitive advantages, but do they have any other major competitive advantages over peers that you'd like to share?
3: I think it's really kind of what they do with the data. I mean, the peers, if you want to talk like Icon and PPD are good companies. They're very strong operationally. But what differentiates IQVIA is its ability to find patients and find sites using the data really quickly. And, and Icon and PPD can't compete with IQVIA when it comes to that.
2: And so just looking at their revenue, do they have any concentration risks between any of their customers or is it pretty well diversified?
3: It's pretty well diversified. This is a really big business and it's a global business.
2: So IQVO right now is trading about 22% below its 2022 highs. I assume this drop in share price was probably a driving force on what got you interested in the business in the first place. Can you tell me why the market has punished the share price so badly and why you think sentiment will change?
3: Well, I think there are two main controversies to highlight. First, there are fears about the emerging biopharma funding environment. Second, there's a slowdown in the economically sensitive part of the technology and analytics, that task segment. I'd be happy to talk about each of those briefly if that would be helpful. Absolutely. So on the EBP funding issue, there was a big decline in 2022 after a couple of boom years. Funding got as high as $130 billion in 2020 and $120 billion in 2021, but it fell to $60 billion in 2022. Now, that sounds scary, but it's really not weak on an absolute basis. It's just back to where it was before the boom, which is a pretty normal level with more than enough money to fund good science. Also, IQVIA isn't feeling a hole today because much of the money that was raised during the boom went toward early stage, more, more speculative stuff that was never going to make it through to later stage phase two or three trials, which is where IQVIA plays. And then on the, on the slowdown that happened in, that's going on in TAS, consulting, which is sensitive to the economy, is causing modest pressure on growth. The organic growth in the TAS segment is running at around 6% this year, whereas the typical growth rate is usually seven to nine. If you pull out consulting, the rest of the segment is growing at eight, and it grew 9% last year. So all things considered, we view this performance as solid considering the, the macro environment. We see this slow down there as, as more of a blip, but it's enough to scare away some healthcare investors who put a very high premium on stability.
2: So a lot of pharmacy businesses were seeming to ride some pretty heavy COVID tailwinds, but IQV is continuing to see really good organic growth rates in both segments that you've already outlined. Do you see organic growth rates in kind of that 9 to 12% range that you mentioned being sustainable over the next uh, few years?
3: IQV COVID revenues should be around $400 million this year. COVID-related revenues got as high as as, close as almost $2 billion at the peak in 2021. But we value the company off of kind of its normal earnings power and and where it should what what its revenue should look like, a couple years out in 2025, and by then we expect that COVID revenues will have trailed off to zero by then.
2: So, how are you guys navigating the Federal Trade Commission's attempt to block IQVIA's acquisition of Propel Media?
3: Propel Media would be a nice addition for the company. It would help their uh, digital marketing capabilities but it's a really small percentage of the total value of the company. So it wouldn't have a material impact on our value if they were not able to go forward with that transaction.
2: So let's discuss a little bit more about evaluation. In your second quarter commentary, you mentioned that you believe IQVIA is currently trading around 15 times normalized earnings. What do you feel is a reasonable normalized earnings multiple? And can you explain what adjustments that you made to their current earnings to come to that figure?
3: At the time of our initial purchase, IQVIA was selling near a trough multiple, as you said, around 15 times our estimate of of the normal earnings. This is well below the market multiple and well below where IQVIA has traded historically. Even though the company has prospects for sustainable growth at an above average rate, it usually trades at a premium to the market. When we think about the normal earning power, we look at what the business can earn a couple of years out, like I said a minute ago, and we add back amortization of intangibles. We factor in share repurchases between now and then. You know, management targets that 8 to 10% organic revenue growth, and we think the operating income growth should be at least that fast due to operating leverage. Life sciences companies and data and information services comparables that have similar growth characteristics and return profiles tend to sell for PE ratios in the mid-20s. And that seems reasonable to us for IQVIA. There's also a long history of private market transactions in the CRO area that would support an EBITDA multiple of over 20 times. We think that's about right for this business.
2: Let's go over some of the growth drivers that they're going to have in the future. What, what do you see that they are currently pulling now, or what can they pull out to uh, help keep driving growth and, and organic growth at the rates they're going out now?
3: Yeah, well, the primary growth driver is the organic revenue. Uh, you know, management expects that 8 to 10 growth in the core business. We also think there should be some operating leverage on top of that. And then in terms of buybacks, IQVIA has bought back nearly $620 million dollars of the stock year to date. And this quarter they increased the uh, repurchase authorization by $2 billion to bring the total to about 2.7 billion. That's equivalent to 7% of the market cap. And and then finally, we think they'll be able to add a point or two to the growth rate through acquisitions. And I, I think one other thing is that management is comfortable running this business at more than four times net debt to EBITDA they're at around three and a half times today. And I, I would point out that the levered buyback model tends to be an overlooked value driver at a lot of companies. We, we think it, it's an important thing to consider here, and it, it's really helped grow value at companies like AutoZone or HCA or Charter and several others.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: That's LandRoverUSA.com.
2: Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this: it's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment. Frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase a higher rate than City, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account.
0: Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
2: All right, back to the show. So Bill, you've discussed spreads in terms of price to earnings ratios between value and growth in the S&P 500. You've also said that the spread uh, currently is unusually high, which is allowing investors to make very high quality portfolio with investments that are a lot cheaper than usual. How do you see these spreads changing as the economy normalizes in the coming years?
1: One of the ways we look at how attractive the value opportunity is in the market is we rank order the S&P 500 companies based on their PE multiples and then we look at the 50th most expensive and the 50th cheapest. And today, the 50th most expensive S&P stock sells at about 60 times expected earnings. The 50th cheapest sells at about eight and a half times. So the multiple of the expensive stocks to the cheap stocks is about seven times. We've kept this data since 1990. And the average over the past 33 years has been the expensive stocks are about four times the cheap stocks. So if there are 50 stocks under 10 times earnings, there'd be 50 over 40 times earnings. And it's a pretty tight range around that four times number. Growth tends to get cheap when it's only three times as expensive as the cheap names, and it tends to be expensive at about five times. If you go back to the internet bubble around 2000, that ratio did get to nine times. Cheap stocks were about nine times earnings then, and expensive ones were over 80 times. And that was as high as we had ever seen it. And what followed was one of the best multi-year periods for value investing really ever. And then we saw that get elevated again in the late 2010s, and then going into COVID, it spiked again, creating another really good value opportunity. Sitting at seven times like it is today, I would say this is in the the 10% of best opportunities for value investors. And the result of that for our portfolios has been the names we've been selling tended to be the growthier names we bought them opportunistically, they performed well, but now their PE multiples are getting up pretty significantly above the S&P 500. And then that money is getting recycled into companies whose PE ratios are dramatically beneath the market. I think a lot of times you hear market commentators say, you know, the s and is at 18 times or 20 times earnings. And then they'll use that as an excuse to say investors need to be unusually cautious and the opportunity set isn't as good as it normally is because over a longer period of time, the S&P has averaged more like 15 times earnings. We think that thinking about the spread gives another important piece of information because the history of buying stocks at single digit PEs and then patiently waiting for reversion to the mean has been very good for investors.
2: So many businesses in the financial sector have had their stock prices heavily punished from just being associated with collapses in banks like Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, et cetera. Can you tell me where you are seeing the most value in the financial sector and any other industries that you feel are currently heavily undervalued?
1: Sure. And I'm sure, Kyle, you know that the banking industry has been under pressure pretty much since the great financial crisis 15 years ago and leads to people saying now, Oakmark always loves financials. That that has been true pretty much post-GFC, but that wasn't always the case. Typically, financial stocks traded at, say, two-thirds the S&P multiple. We think they're better businesses today, less risky because they have more capital, and they're trading at eight, nine times earnings when the S&P is close to 20. So. Their discount to the market multiple is much larger than it has been historically. And we think the fundamentals would justify that discount narrow, narrowing from the historical numbers because of the risk reduction. And I think one of the most important things across the financial space, these companies used to like amplify their own cyclicality by chasing revenue goals. And you'd hear all the major bank CEOs talk about how they expected to grow faster than the industry. Well, as the economy would start to top out and they'd all be trying to grow faster than the industry, that meant lending standards had to decline. But what you see today is every major bank CEO talks about growth in terms of per share value. And they're just as excited about putting capital to work, reducing the size of the company, the number of outstanding shares, As they are in trying to grow the scale of the business. Uh, And both, we're equally excited about either form of growth. So we like the large banks. We think they have important competitive advantages against smaller peers. Things like uh, fraud prevention, regulatory compliance, mobilization, all of those cost only a little bit more if you're a much bigger bank than they do for a smaller bank. So, in terms of that cost relative to the assets that you have, there are tremendous economies of scale. And that's why the big banks have been gaining share because they're able to offer their customers a, a better value proposition. So we like most of the large banks. We like a lot of the insurance companies, a name like AIG that's been in our portfolio for a long time. Again, it has the great financial crisis taint to it. It sells at a big discount to book value. It's rapidly closing the gap, performance gap between AIG and the other large insurers, yet still sells at a low PE multiple. In addition to financials, uh, we think the oil and gas industry is very cheap. Most of the U.S. e companies trade at single-digit PEs based on current price for oil. And like the banking industry... This is an industry that's also gotten comfortable with returning capital to shareholders. In the past, these companies would tend to take every dollar they could get their hands on and try and explore to find new oil. But as the industry has grown up and matured, they've come to recognize or they've come to accept the responsibility of maximizing per share value to shareholders. And you're seeing them put capital to work, buying back stock, paying dividends that in a lot of cases now are above average uh, for the S&P 500. And we also think the energy industry has kind of an ESG taint associated with it. And we expect as ESG investors become maybe a bit more nuanced in how they think about environmental effect, that the U.S. companies will fare very well with them because they are so much more carbon efficient than the rest of the world is. You know, there are people who are patting themselves on the back when regulations went into effect that would reduce U.S. production of oil. But then that just meant we were buying oil from Venezuela, and per barrel they're, they're producing 50% more carbon than we are. So it helps the U.S. hit their goals, but in terms of the world goals, it's, it's a big negative. And We also saw with the Ukraine war, the advantage of being energy self-sufficient. And there is a tremendous social good to having some energy independence. So the executives at the oil companies are telling us they're starting to get more thoughtful questions from the ESG community, as opposed to them just saying, no, we don't ever want to own any energy companies. So we think there'll be increasing investor demand for the, these companies. And if we're wrong and there isn't, the tremendous cash flow will largely be coming back to shareholders. Another area that we find attractive is traditional media. You find a lot of people referring to the cable TV industry. We'd refer to it as internet service providers. The current battle we're seeing between Disney and Charter, I think, highlights that the, what used to be cable industry is now making all their, almost all their money from providing internet access, and that internet access is going to be necessary for work from home, for video streaming. Uh, we think those companies, single-digit PE multiples, are deserving of infrastructure-type multiples that would be significantly higher, in some cases higher than the S&P 500. And then last, I would mention uh, consumer durables. There's been a tendency of investors to highly prioritize risk reduction in their portfolios, uh, given kind of what we've been through uh, the past couple of years of highly volatile markets. It's resulted in consumer non-durables like food stocks, in many cases, selling at premiums to the S&P 500. We have a hard time arguing that those are better than average businesses, but the consumer durables Things like auto and auto related businesses typically sell in the mid single digit range. I think investors are thinking they are going to be disrupted by EV technology. And we think in a lot of cases, the parts companies are going to do well regardless of how rapidly EV takes over from ICE. And that a lot of the OEM companies, like a General Motors, are among the leaders in transitioning their fleet from ICE to EV. Again, single digit PEs, reasonable growth in business, value, and a lot of capital coming back to shareholders uh, as they're generating more capital than they can invest. I think one other thing is investors are kind of fearful of an economic decline. Got the Fed trying to reduce inflation and concern that'll induce a recession but if it does this is going to be a really unusual recession for the auto industry because we're already we're our starting point now is about 20% below normal annual car sales and that's because of lingering supply chain issues uh, that resulted from covid those are the four areas broadly that we're overexposed to most forms of financials most forms of energy legacy media and consumer durables
2: so you recently talked about how you utilize non-GAAP financial metrics to help you make better sense of evaluation in tech businesses. You mentioned using them to help you evaluate businesses like Adobe and Uber. Can you share a little bit more about how you go about making adjustments to some of these tech names to help you get a better grasp of the true economic value of them?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. The two names you mentioned, even though most people would call them growth businesses, we didn't have to do much changing to their financial statements to highlight the value at the times we bought them. In the case of Adobe, the stock had fallen a fair amount, and then they announced the acquisition of Figma, and their stock fell by more than the entire acquisition price of Figma. It got so low that on a year-out basis, they were looking at a higher cash flow yield than the S&P 500 had. And we have always believed Adobe was an excellent, above-average business deserving of a premium multiple. So seeing that multiple go to a discount within a one- to two-year time period was, was pretty attractive to us. And in the case of Uber, at the time we purchased it, it had a double-digit cash flow yield, so greater than 10%. Now, there are a lot of companies we've invested in over the years that have required us to make some adjustments to gap numbers. And the reason is that gap accounting was really designed for an industrial world. And when an industrial company wanted to grow, they'd build a new plant. And because that plant would last for 30 years, instead of that expense going through the income statement, it would go on the balance sheet, and then it would go through the income statement 1 30th each year as a depreciation expense. And the basic message of GAAP accounting is it has to be a tangible asset to go on the balance sheet. If you can't touch or feel it, then it should be expense. And if you think about the businesses today that are above average growers, a lot of the expenditures that make them above average are intangibles. They're to acquire a customer base or R&D spending, marketing spending. All of those go straight through the income statement. Even though they have enduring benefits for the business, customer acquisition costs, when we owned a database company, Gartner. They would spend to get new customers, and that customer would be with them on average seven years. When they decided the opportunity was there to accelerate their expenditures for new customers, it ended up reducing earnings rather than increasing them. Recharacterized that expense as a capital expenditure went through amortizing that through the income statement over a seven-year time period. And instead of Gartner looking like it was selling at twice the market multiple, it made it look like it was selling at less than the market multiple. And there is no debate about Gartner being a better than average business. Most people were talking about, did it really deserve to be at 35 times earnings? But we thought that was a case where Gap Accounting just wasn't doing justice to a very high-quality business. This is something we've done at Oakmark since our inception. Early days, it was on the cable TV industry where they were spending tremendously on customer acquisition costs or on a company like Amgen that had very high R&D. But it would be something that every couple of years, we'd find a company where we needed to adjust the financial statements. Today, there are probably half a dozen names in the portfolio, including our largest holding alphabet, where the headline multiple looks like it's at a premium to the market. But after you make a few adjustments, you see that like, the basic search business is actually available at a discount.
2: Well, Bill, Bobby, thank you so much for joining me today. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about your fund?
1: I think the best spot to learn about Oakmark is to go to our website. uh, That's oakmark.com. And as I mentioned early on in this discussion, we put a lot of effort into trying to write quarterly reports that really explain how we think about investing. And an investor who wants to try and understand us can go to our website and read probably the past five years of quarterly reports that we've written. None of that gets changed. We don't pro-forma it for mistakes that we made back then. So you can see our comments real time about our successes and our failures, what we thought about the market, what it was causing us to do differently in our portfolios. And I think somebody who puts in the time to read those reports will come away with an understanding of how we invest that would give them the confidence to be a long-term Oakmark investor which is what we think you need to be to make a success of a long-term value investing style.
3: Excellent.
2: Well, thank you guys very much. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Kyle. Okay, folks, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here very soon.
0: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network.